Hey folks, uh, welcome back to the ABM Voice podcast. I'm your host, Arun Gopalaswamy. Today, I have the company of Mark Agni, the founder of the ABM Consortium. Mark is a marketing leader, a full-time CMO in his uh, past career. Uh, he has co-authored New York Times uh, best-selling books, has won awards. It's my absolute pleasure to spend some time today and, and really understand uh, his experience and sort of get some insights around B2B marketing and ABM specifically. Good morning, Mark. Uh, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Arun. How are you today? Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Look forward to uh, having a conversation and I'm glad you reached out to me. Thanks, Mark. Mark, let's just get started with uh, getting to know you a little bit better as you've spent what, like more than two decades as a marketer, marketing executive. Take us through the journey. What has marketing changed from the time you started to what it is today? I'm going to go back even another decade and a half further. So Hmm. unique in my background is I started as a sales rep, became a sales manager, became a very, very large key account manager. In that role, the largest deal I closed was a $400 million annual deal. So Hmm. it was a very strategic role, you know, working with boards of directors at public companies and things like that. And then I went into general management, but this was like at the dot-com era. And I realized with the sales and general management background that really the whole landscape was changing because as a salesperson, I could talk to one or a couple of people at a time, but as a marketer now, I could talk to thousands of people. And so that really intrigued me. And that was really the turning point of my career into uh, marketing, specifically B2B, although um, in some of my roles, it was really B2B selling to an audience that was B2C. So B2B to C, mm-hmm. <laughs> which gets really complicated here. But yeah, in in starting this role, I think it was really a transition of the digital economy that spurred my interest in moving this direction. And since then, I've really seen myself as trying to develop a really, I call it a broad tool belt, like lots of tools. Hmm. Uh, I think today I've heard a lot of people talk about a T-shaped marketer. Hmm. And I think that, you know, I, I thought of this 20 years ago and tried to make that really a point of my career was to become super broad to be able to understand and appreciate anything from AR and PR to uh, marketing operations. Hmm. Interesting. What's your vertical part of the team? For me, you know, I would say uh, product marketing and demand and uh, demand gen. So how understanding an audience and how to understand their interests, come up with the right messaging, and then use some good targeting to create demand through through those audiences. Hmm. I think that area is really kind of the, the deep part of my tea. Hmm. Interesting. So you're on ABM Consortium, right? So what kind of work do you do you do as part of your role and what kind of clients do you work with? It, it's really a two-part question. There's two segments of it. The first part is we do primary research to understand how performance occurs in account-based marketing. Hmm. So in 2015, I came up with this construct of uh, six steps. And then each of the steps we broke down into research. uh, And our hypothesis is that there's a Likert scale of response from a low maturity, which should equate to to low um, success or low revenue impact to high maturity, which should correlate to high revenue impact. The research, we've done it four times now, like sample size, close to a thousand each time. And there's a direct correlation. So our hypothesis has worked out every time. And in fact, on Wednesday, I'm delivering a workshop uh, talking about some of this research for the uh, B2B MX, the uh, next level ABM virtual sessions. 
And the other part of that is we've really developed a tremendous sense for building pilots. Now, the pilot is applicable to roughly about two-thirds of ABM programs because what we found is there's still roughly a third that have not really tried ABM. They're kind of confused. They sit on the sideline a little bit. There's the other two-thirds that have done it, but half of them failed. And so they're wanting to restart or re-engineer what they had done. So we really focus on the people that have not had the confidence to have deployed yet and those who have tried it, pulled the trigger and failed, which is about two-thirds of the market. And we have a lot of IP around how do we help to create an ideal customer profile? How do we use that as a means to segment and then use the segmentation for targeting and to set up a design of experiment, meaning that we could understand the metrics of do we have the right understanding of a cohort, a segment of an audience? Because in every situation, ABM should succeed wildly because you're, you're taking a broad, broad audience and you're breaking it down into components. And if you have the right understanding of that component audience, you should be successful there. So typical failures occur when either you try to market against the whole audience as one, or if you have the wrong product marketing understanding of an audience and you're delivering at it and it still isn't working. Interesting. So you, you popularized this concept of ABM orchestration. You used to talk a lot, I think yeah. six, seven years ago, right? What is it like help us understand and is it still relevant? And is it Part of the framework that yeah. you talked about? It is a, it, one of the elements of the, of the framework, for sure. And we were the very first people to talk about orchestration. Now, I think a lot of people have grabbed the concept and tried to morph it into what works with their platform, but that's not what we had intended. What we had intended was that orchestration was bringing together the components of, I understand the needs of an audience, I have the content that should fit those needs, and I know where I should deliver that content. Hmm. It's, so it's the orchestration of three components the need, the content, and the delivery uh, or the activation. Hmm. So when you put those three things together properly, we call that orchestration. Awesome. Get it. And is that a changing, how does it fit into your, like these six-step framework? Where does it come into play? Yeah, so I could send this to you, but basically it start, it, I think it's a Hegelian process. It's a never-ending cycle going around. You have to select accounts, and it's really important how you select them that you have data to back it up. It's not just, this is what my sales team tells me, or it's not just, these are the accounts in Salesforce. Those were good enough when you did kind of inbound marketing or just you know generic outbound marketing to anybody. Right. But in ABM, what you're trying to do is to find the audiences that hear you better, need, have what you need more, are willing to pay more for it and stay longer. So like the audience is the first component, understanding their needs. Orchestration, I'm probably going to miss one here. Measurement was the last one. I think I missed one in that cycle there. Right. But basically, it was the full cycle from identifying an audience and their needs. Content was one that I missed. Content, orchestration, measurement. Hmm. And so it just keeps uh, trying to optimize on itself. Right. So one of the questions I had written for this interview was around continuous improvement right about any process that you have so this is scope for improvement and i guess this framework that you have seemed to have like inbuilt mechanism to continuously improve the process and then yeah. at, at all levels of all these different six components that you talked about am i right indeed indeed so i think really one of the keys that people miss is that account selection process and they think of a target account list and and I really emphasize that you need to, that's a very heterogeneous list. 
small companies, big companies, one industry, another industry, one geography, another, like it is so heterogeneous that it's really impossible to tell what you're doing or how successful you are. I use this as a, an example. Let's say, you know, somebody says, you know, Hey, my ABM program, uh, it pushed my marketing attributed revenue up by 20%. And I'll ask them, is that good? And we'll say, well, yeah, I mean, of course it is. But invariably, if you've not done the segmentation work, you have a group that's up 60, another group that's down 20, mm. netting it like, you know, up 20 or you know, however these numbers would come out. But the marketer would have been far better off to have understood that market that was down 20, because that the challenge there is likely either it's a, a bad audience, they don't hear what you have to sell very well, or you have a wrong product marketing and content approach for their right. needs. Now, so what one of the key pieces of our framework is a, a piece of IP we built, we call the engagement matrix. So consider columns as being whatever somebody's uh, stage of engagement is. There's some kind of an awareness problem, and then there's a cross-sell, upsell on the other side. Like however somebody thinks of those stages of a buyer's journey, and then the rows are the segments. So traditional you know, malpractice as you know, best practice is that there's really one row. And I'm here to tell you, like, that's really a, a low performing idea. According to the, the research, right? According to the research, that is among the lowest performing ideas that you can come at it with. So what we do typically is to uh, go through an exercise that we have to help break that down into cohorts. Hmm. Okay. And if you take the combined list and you pour it into that matrix, obviously by row, pretty soon you start to see where they spread out in the columns. Hmm. And to, to make ABM as simple as possible, the objective is to move buyers, move prospects from cell 1A to 1B, as an example, or hmm. 2A, 2B, or whatever. Like, but to be able to move a defined audience one step to the right. Now, if you're effective at doing that, then you have the business case now for spending money on technology and other things that can help you scale all these things asynchronously because buyers don't go through a process like a, a funnel the way we think. I mean, they, hmm. they move asynchronously one from the other. And so if you think of ABM as a campaign where you just put all your lists into, into a, a campaign, it's so ineffective because some, let's say you're really successful and some move through fast. Well, they don't go anywhere else because you've, you can't move them from an awareness problem to you know, a closed one status in a, you know, single campaign, but you're also missing, unless you've done the segmentation, you're missing the fact that, you know, people have different sets of needs. And if you're not able to isolate hmm. to those need sets, you're going to be very ineffective. I guess I'm closing the loop now on, on how we try to set this up. We call that a design of experiment, mm -hmm. that engagement matrix. Okay. And so when we first set this up, we may have many, many segments. We may have many, many, you know, uh, stages of engagement, but we'll pick several and we'll say, which ones do we think we have the best content for? Hmm. Which ones, and, and we'll, we'll set up a program for one cell and then measure how effectively we can move to that next stage for that. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think that was my next question. So when you're initiating a pilot, so essentially taking one or two cells and then see what are the things that are moving to sell from A to B to C and whatnot. Now, frequently I'll choose like three or four and, and it's, it's, it, it may sound like a small nit, but it's not. What I want to do is to show somebody that they can do something successfully. Mm -hmm. I also want to show them where things didn't work. Here's the, the thing about marketing and, and like, you know, teams that I've run is I'll, I'll tell them, I'm not afraid of failure. If you're not failing, you're not trying to find the parameters of performance. Mm -hmm. What I am afraid of is that you keep failing. So 
set something up to where you understand you could run a program against it and say, wait a minute, that's not working. So if you set it up properly and you understand what's not working, you could stop. Once you stopped it, you can go back and reassess. What did I get wrong here? Hmm. And then you continue with the ones that are moving along fine. So failure, I think, is an important part of success to understand the boundaries. I always think, I, I always say there's a 200% improvement out there that we're, you know, when people are trying to find a 20% improvement. Yeah. Like you have to think bigger to find the kind of the parameters of performance. Okay. You talked about uh, intern and I think I saw a blog that you've written recently and then you sort of really liked it. So you analyzed intern in terms of ambiguity, specificity, I guess, latency and multilinguality, right? It's a short blog, right, but I right. think it, uh, it sort of like gives you an idea of how not to use intent and how we think about intent. Please help us understand and like really go a little deeper and then explain how yeah. one should think about intent and how they should. Is it a, a signal that they can completely rely on? Is this is an ancillary thing that they should pair it up with something else? So the way I netted out is intent data is a valuable thing. Having more of it is better. But if you have all of it and it's perfect, it's still incomplete. Hmm. So what I mean by that is there's really a couple of different dimensions. On, on one side, intent data is not predictive. So when people try to tell you this is predictive intent, they're lying or, or they just don't know what they're talking about. There's hmm. Intent data is a backward looking signal yeah. that is only third party. So it has no idea if it's like intentionality to research something that they just bought. Hmm or if it's to research for a purchase, like they can't tell you, the intent data cannot tell you that. Some of that data is gonna be in your first party data. So understanding combinations of first party, party behavioral signals along with a third party intent is far more valuable than intent alone. The next part, and, and you, you highlighted these elements here is that intent data is flawed in many different ways. And let me, I, I like to use a use case here. I, I'm a marketer in North America. IBM is one of my key target accounts. And my vendor hands me a CSV and it, boom, hey, there's IBM on there. And they're, they're looking for widgets and I sell widgets and it's like, I'm really excited. So I put together a whole plan around, you know, getting the sales team involved and my BDRs and my marketing investments. And we put all of our money on the table and time. And what we found is that the vendor couldn't tell us whether it came from the UK or the US. Oh, this signal came from the UK. So every minute of time I, I directed the salespeople and every dollar that I spent following this, this signal was for a waste. Now, more importantly, what I needed to know is that IBM signal, did it come from San Jose, California or Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, because Raleigh, Durham would be a retention problem. They're already a customer. So mm -hmm. having an intense signal doesn't mean I'm trying to sell them. If I have an intense signal and it's from Raleigh-Durham, I need to save them. And, and let's put that up with first-party data to say that they're up for renewal. But if it's San Jose, that's an acquisition opportunity. So everybody tends to think of intent as being, you know, about acquisition and targeting. But it may, you know, it may be the exact opposite of the type of play that you need to run. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't have additional data on top of the intent data. The other part of that is, what about intense signals from IBM, you know, in, in French? Now, if I don't, if I if use just a language, I wouldn't be able to know whether it was the UK or the US, both, both being English speaking. It, with French, I wouldn't know if it's from Quebec, Canada or Paris, France. Hmm. So you need to have a layer of geography and a layer of, of link, uh, language. So when you have all of these things together, 
you can come up with something that's actionable at a global scale. And is that something that you typically use it for your account selection? And then you talked about the research that goes in, right? It's part of the cell identification. So is this, are you relying uh, on intent more and more of it? Or yeah, I understand that it needs to be paired with other signals. I'm curious to know how you actually use it and recommend to your customers. So if I've segmented properly, and let's say that I'm looking at a buying center level, you know, Forrester would advocate strongly that I'm looking at a buying center level. So I have IBM Raleigh Durham in a, you know, a column of their customer. That's the stage of engagement they're at. But uh, San Jose, California would be an awareness or engagement column for their buyer's journey. And because of that, if I see a signal come in and I have the geography of that signal, I can say, wait a minute, that's Raleigh Durham, that's retention problem versus that's San Jose and that's an acquisition opportunity. Hmm. So that's one of the ways. Now, the, the struggle is very few vendors would, would have the geographic overlay. So perhaps what you could do is, you know, overlay some first party signals like, hey, I'm, I'm seeing signals from Raleigh Durham, like they're actually, you know, looking and hitting our website a lot or whatever. And you know, I'm also seeing this from two or three different intent vendors. I think that the point, though, that I was making in the blog entry that you mentioned earlier is that it's an immature industry that's being oversold for what it is. It's an important signal. I'm not saying that it's garbage. It's an important signal, but it's an incomplete signal. And there are facets of it that have yet to grow in the maturity that would make it very, very usable for you. Hmm. So let's say if you find IBM in, in your third party CSV list, and then you don't get any first party information, right? To overlay and then really. Now, if you had oh. it in the engagement matrix, you have a bit of that in there. You know what stage they're at, hmm. right? Assuming so, I, IBM is one in, in any of your segment, right? So let's say it's IBM was not a target account to start with. You start seeing this a report that third party provider, intent provider is providing. And now what do you do with that? You do you wait till. IBM, you're able to collect some first party intent or you run some programs on IBM, assuming they have an intent and, and really qualify. So I would challenge the question though, like why, why would I have a large opportunity target account not have been identified in my ICP? Okay. I, I would challenge to go back up and say, well, wait a minute, should I, IBM have been a part of this ICP? Hmm. I, I don't think it's enough to say like from an inbound world perspective, you would rationalize to figure out, yeah, hey, you know what, this, you know, Acme company, let's remove IBM because we always right. think it's big and it's probably qualified. So let's right. say Acme company. And we would rationalize to say, oh, sure, yeah, they could buy our technology. I'm going to score it. I'm going to call it a, a qualified lead and give it to a sales rep. Now, in ABM, you're actually spending money to try to do that. You're trying to target people specifically. So if Acme company is not, identified in the ICP and segmented properly as a, a high value target, hmm. I would go back to question the ICP criteria rather than trying to rationalize it as, you know, it's fair to say that it's not an account-based motion. Hmm. Hey, we got a lead from Acme company. It's, it's maybe, you know, a plausible sale, you know, let's pass it on as a lead, but are we going to track that as an account now? try to build out the buying center and, you know, prioritize it at, at a, an ICP level is a separate question. Hmm. It's the question that if you see stuff coming in, 
that you're going to rationalize and say, holy cow, this is a great one. We should, you know, we should be targeting this. Like go back to the ICP and figure out, does it fit what you were focused on? And again, the lens that you should be using in in this process is, is it an account that historically people like them? You've been able to close fast. You've been able to, to charge, you know, proper money for the services. They stay longer. They renew. They're happy. They buy additional products and services from you. Like, thriving customers, something I hadn't gotten into yet, but it is something I'll get into in my workshop on Wednesday is customer portfolio analysis. It's a big mouthful of words, but basically I've been doing this for like 15 years and and almost every time it comes out similar to this, roughly a third of your customers make all your profit. The middle 40 or 50% are somewhere between making a little bit of money and losing a little bit of money, but more or less break even. And the bottom 20-ish percent, they cost you the balance of your profit. People, marketers don't think like this yet, and they need to, especially when they're considering building an ICP, because there are businesses that you can close that end up corrupting your business. These are the people that you have to give bigger, deeper price concessions to. You have to wrap more services around them because they complain all the time. You know, they, they want make goods or whatever on, you know, stuff that you've already sold them, but you have to, you know, hand it over free again. And then after a year, they get pissed off, blame you and leave. Hmm. It's like, these people cost you money. You would have been better off to have never sold them, right? You have to be mature enough as an organization to understand that not anybody that's willing to give you money is a customer that you should try to acquire. Hmm. And that's the difference between a total addressable market. So people that use TAM in in the context of ABM are looking at the world incorrectly. You don't want TAM. You want ICP. The difference of those being, you know, kind of that last half of customers that could potentially figure out a way to, you know, reason to give you money, but would end up costing you profit in the long run. How do you determine that this is the wrong account in the ICP? So I have seen deals come through systems before where a salesperson is making guarantees on quality, on, on certain outcomes that were improbable to have been able to deliver successfully. It was a losing proposition for the customer and the company. It was clearly bad revenue. Now the customer did what they were supposed to do. Like they got the best deal they possibly could, but then their expectations were set at a level that nobody in the world could could perform to. So the organization was losing money every month on trying to service this business. And yet the account couldn't use as clearly what it was that we as an organization did really well. So the idea is, hey, they figured out a way to give us money, not money that we should have taken. And and ultimately what ends up happening is those customers are trite. They blame you as a a vendor and, and you go through gyrations and cycles to try to make them happy. But the point is that you should have done two things in this situation. You should have been able to control the deal that was being offered at that time better. And you should have had a threshold for not having accepted them. Now, how do you tell profitability? You know what, it probably is going to require, you know, an ERP that allows you to identify customer profitability. And I don't think that many startups have that capacity, but even if you did it as something, how much were they discounted off of list price? And are, you know, are the services consumed greater or, or less than so if you have below standard with higher services, I think those are things that you should probably look at. Hmm. And you could probably stack rank them on a histogram and say, okay, 
this section over here we're going to examine. Huh. There's probably, you know, most of the accounts you probably don't even need to look at if they're huh. at list price and you're not giving them inordinate quantities of service to wrap around. But thinking of simplistic ways to think of it. Okay. But all this are coming later in the customer, customer acquisition process, right? So you define your ICP, you identify a list of accounts that fits into the ICP, you start nurturing them, you right? So you build relationship. The deal is something that, that's coming like much later, right? And you determine, yeah. okay, there, this is an account that you're not going to serve as well for so-and-so reasons, right? So you've burnt a lot of resources, time, et cetera, at that point of time. So if, if it is like a deal running into months or years, for example, right? So you've like wasted effort in, in chasing the round set of customers. Obviously, you can take that as a lesson and maybe not include them in your next list, next campaign, whatever. But is this a necessary evil that you have to go through to avoid servicing wrong set of customers? Yeah, and I think you should always be going through it as an organization. It to have, you know, I'll use the word maturity, but it's not in a, a pejorative sense. To have the maturity to understand what you do well and what you don't do well hmm. liberates you to spend more time on what you do well. Hmm. And I guess that's it, where the research that you talked about can also come in handy, right? So when you actually try and understand, right. go deeper into this account, and then see if it is going to fit. Maybe come up with some kind of a predictive models or something like that to see if this is the right sure thing. We should. By the way, when we construct the ICP, there are simple ways that we talk about doing it. Like get all the closed one business for the last two, three, four years, whatever, and then understand which ones had the highest ACV, which ones have been renewing. You could pick up indicators where you look at it and say, wait a minute, renewal. I want to, I want to find people that want to renew more. Got it. Okay. Right. I want to yeah. find people that are willing to give me an ACV that's above normal. Hmm. And I want to avoid people to have a, a really deprecated ACV hmm. and churn. Okay. Now I get it. I yeah. think you're so talking you, about the customer marketing part of it, right? Not necessarily new logo acquisition. No, it is new logo acquisition, but you're using history to predict future or to 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 indicate future. So okay. if you have in industry firm size and geography where you've never been able to succeed at it. Okay. The point is either you say, wait a minute, we need to be good at that. And you, you hand it to a SWAT team to figure it out hmm. or, or you avoid them. Hmm. But I think more companies get themselves into a bad place by saying, well, no, they're really good. We still need to try it. But then year after year, you know, you, you cycle so much time on the stuff that's sucking the energy out of your company when you could have spent the same amount of time on customers that like you better or, or have, have a, a model predict, uh, history of understanding what you do better, pay you more and stay longer. Hmm. Makes sense. I think so it's, it makes perfect sense. It's, it's that bottom quartile that sucks the energy out of a company. Hmm. And the point here is that if you're going to develop an account-based strategy, you should focus on the things that are most likely to give you the highest upside. Okay. And you can't guess at that. Hmm. Sure. And my next question. So let's say you sign up a client this week, next week, whatever, right? So how do you go ahead building a, a, a playbook for them, specifically an ABM playbook for them, right? So generically speaking, there's a lot of context I understand. Yeah. So we follow that six-step process. Okay. Now, so we start with, you know, how do you... You probably have a target account list. How did you come up with this? And one of the areas, as an example, 
um, oh, this is a few years back. It was an e-commerce infrastructure company and they had a list of 3000 accounts. We want, wanted to run a pilot and he said, okay, well, um, let's just pick 10% of them. And I said, well, no, how about if we go in there and try to develop segments? I said, so you're an infrastructure company and that means that you integrate with with core e-commerce systems. Yes, that's right. There's 28 of them that we integrate with. Okay, cool. Are, are there a stand away, like, you know, two, three, four of them that are like more important for you that you do really, really well? Oh yeah, there's these three right here. Okay, let's take a look at those three. Okay, within those three, uh, we know that you have a list of these companies that already use this infrastructure, use this core uh, technology and you can uh, integrate to it well. Okay, so are they all uh, enterprise, mid-market, SMB? Oh, well, you know, no, they, 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 uh, these two are all enterprise and this one here is SMB and enterprise. You get where I'm going? It, it's this conversation of trying to narrow down to, okay, what is that audience that we should be trying to go after in this pilot? We're developing segments. We're, we're preparing for the engagement matrix, right? Okay. And then we try to figure out, okay, so who are the people in enterprise versus this SMB? I'm, I'm going to imagine that at the enterprise, you're dealing with a, a director, maybe a VP, but at the SMB, you're probably dealing with a CIO or a CEO, like very different audiences here, right? And so do you have the content? Which of these do you have the content that you think that you're really good at? Which of these markets? And so we're walking them through step by step to say, okay, um, you know, what signals do we have coming from? We, we've now isolated, let's say, two of the um, core e-commerce uh, technologies. We understand the buying roles. Uh, we understand the companies we're going to go after because that's a finite list. And then we try to figure out do, how many of these companies do we know people that fit these parameters of titles? Hmm. Oh, we've got big gaps. Okay, well, I think we have something to do there. We could, you know, try to fill some of that in. But you get the you get the thought process that we try to go through a very logical step by step to come to the point of who are we going to target, what are we going to show them, what do we have the content that would resonate with them, and then finally at the very end, it's like how sh how should we reach them if we have some of these companies that are completely in aware a lack of awareness. I don't know, maybe some display, some LinkedIn, or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, do we have some that are thoroughly engaged right now? Hey, why don't we do some, you know, regional events or, you know, like, anyways, you figure out the mix based upon where they're at as stages of engagement. And that's generally the process. So now once we run this and we had it segmented, we can look at it and say, which of these segments did we excel at? Are there segments that we didn't do well with? Then the obvious question is, okay, let's do more of what's working, less of what's not working. Let's go back and figure out what we got wrong on the first go around. See if we can't improve that by test and learn. And then once we figured out those segments, we then get to go and figure out, okay, what other segments are there out there? Let's pick up additional core e-commerce systems that we could integrate with and try to move further and further down the list. Huh. But this isn't just, I got a list, I'm going to deliver ads. Huh. That, that will fail. Fantastic. So earlier in our conversation, we spoke about failed ABM programs, right? So obviously there are reasons. What's the hardest part of doing an ABM month and like how should somebody approach, especially those who are maybe restarting, right? So like how do they solve for it? Are there any specific areas from your experience, right? So where ABM really becomes hard. So I think the process that you just talked about, right? So just narrowing down, right? So moving from cell to cell, 
all of this is complex like what is the hardest part according to you in conversation right now it could be arguably a, a complex idea to digest but in reality we just take it one step at a time we just make decisions we have a conversation about what is it that you're trying to sell and how does it relate to the market hmm. okay and we work our way through step by step that that first conversation um where we went from I'll just just pick 10% of the targets for a pilot program that was a 30 minute conversation and then about 2 or 3 hours of work for me hmm. and then we, all of a sudden we're able to come back and say well what kind of content do we have for these people so it's not like it's weeks and days this this is sometimes minutes or maybe a few hours to get far enough into understanding what can we or should we be doing now failure um so in my research the most recent one was about a year and a half 2 years ago um only 25% of abm programs produced measurable and significant revenue impact significant meant at least 25% of marketing attributed revenue so 3 quarters of abm programs are unable to do that some of the majority groups in there that on the failure side are around i can't measure it like i i have no idea what's actually happening happening because of this largely in that three quarters it's people that have just kind of followed blindly with you know what's told the, to them as best practice select accounts deliver ads you got my platform you know just go do it and you'll win and it it it's not that simple it doesn't work that's not you know i like to joke and say there's a difference between best practice and malpractice sometimes best practice is presented because it comports with somebody's platform and not because it's the right thing to do hmm. and i think that is people thinking that there is a silver bullet uh that there that there's something really easy in abm it's not it's hard and mm. just let's be honest with each other it's not mm. easy to do to do well uh it requires strategic thinking as well as execution and product marketing and like it's a combination of a lot of different disciplines to make it work hmm so you've been a, a cmo for a navium tech company right i think if you yeah. what according to you is the role of abm tech so i think there like sort of a different views right so there are people who are not pro towards tech right and i think there are there's also a misunderstanding abm means technology right so there's all kinds of right. views that are going on but uh, according to you, you you've been in in both the sides right so you you've run abm tech and you've also are now an agency trying to help clients right so when in their abm program so, so what's your view on it? you know i i love a quote from bill gates from many years ago and it had something to do with like automation being you know it's like a two-edged sword it could it could scale bad things as well as it can scale good things hmm. right so you have to have the right strategy and concepts in place before you bring technology to scale it so if you have the wrong idea of who it is that you're supposed to target putting money against it is just going to scale the bad idea and it and I'm not saying that ICP is the only the only limiting constraint I mean once you have that then you have to know the, you know the people and their needs and you need to have content that speaks to, like there's stages of things that you need to be able to to do properly before you get the technology in fact I'd suggest that once you understand uh the nature of your audience it may be more indicative of which technology should i choose hmm. and i think people oftentimes just you know the, there's the uh, ready aim fire and they're just like 
you know, ready, fire, ready, fire, you know, like, Hey, why isn't this working? And huh. they've never figured out what they need to do. And so technology is simply there to scale bad ideas. Hmm. So what's the best time to introduce an optimum time to introduce technology, especially somebody who's getting started with their IBM programs, I'm not talking about enterprises so, because I'm, I'm sure there are running programs, but like, let's say mid market. SMBs, right? So there's a lot of interest, right? So they start with, like yeah. you said, so they start their ABM programs with tech. And uh, so what's your advice for them? So when we set up the pilots, we're talking about the engagement matrix, right? right. And we pick three, four, five cells in there. What we're trying to do is to set up the business case for technology mm -hmm. in that in that execution there. So in those executions, we could, you know, you could do account targeted ads without, you know, a real technology platform. You could do, you know, LinkedIn, you could do content syndication, you can do email, you can do telemarketing, you know, SDR, BDR. There's a lot of channel options that you have before you get into the idea of technology. Now, if you have multiple segments and tech, you need technology, like you can't, physically scale that well enough to move people asynchronously through the matrix right. without the technology. And so in my mind, that's where tech, that's where you make the decision is you figure out, do I have at least a starting point for understanding who my audience is, what their needs are? Do I have the content that could serve them? Well, you know, I've tested it. I see there's a good relationship between these things. At that point, we could figure out the business case to say, okay, if we scale this, uh, you know, we think we could do spend this kind of money and get this kind of a result from it. Hmm. So you need some kind of a baseline, which you prove that it's working and then you start doubling down on that. Yeah, I think so. It, it, because again, the automation, it, you know, I don't want to use bad ideas. I mean, automation can scale incomplete ideas or incorrect understanding. So if you don't have the correct understanding, meaning the understanding the needs of an audience and you don't have the content to address the proper needs, how are you going to scale success there? Like it's impossible. Correct. You, fix you'll the basic. fail that. It, it won't work. Fix yeah, the it, basics it, first. It, yeah. it, 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 you're exactly right. You, you have to get the basics right, test it, and then figure out how much can I spend if I could scale that. Awesome. <clears throat> okay, I have like a few more questions to ask, but I wanted to be cognizant of the time. Uh, one final question. So, so you've been experienced enough in, in multiple things, especially in executive roles, right? So what would be your advice to an aspiring marketer or somebody who's getting started with ABM, right? Something that we spoke initially before the recording started. So what are some of the things that marketing professionals as well as teams should consider, right? so especially in the times that we live in, right? Where machines are now like going to yeah. coexist, right? So literally. You know, it, it a good friend of mine is writing a book, and the topic is the relationship of the CMO to the C-suite, uh, largely at like Fortune 1000 companies. And there's a tremendous gap in there that they speak different languages. I think there's a couple of pieces of advice. One of them is work with like a you know controller at your company or a, a director of finance or somebody to come up with, you don't have to go to the CFO right away. But what is the language that your organization would understand from a finance perspective about delivering messages of how you, what you're doing? Like, 
so many people use uh, sourcing metrics for their leads or activity metrics. You know, we, we launched five campaigns. The CFO and the CEO, it's wah, 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 wah. Like, like I couldn't care less, right? right? You don't understand our business. So that a marketer should really, really understand the business and how the C team communicates uh, the effects to their business. Hmm. Okay. What is the model? Is it a free to paid acquisition? Is it, you know, like there's many different models of business and there's many different ways that the CFO and the CEO are going to be thinking about it. You just need to figure out their language and try to communicate in something that sounds like that language. And what I would say is that, um, you know, most, in fact, I saw some research, it was like 86% of marketers couldn't construct a simple pro forma. And if you don't know what the word is, you should Google it right now. Hmm because it's important to you. And it basically, it's trying to line up multiple options and to say option, you know, if we do nothing, we'll get this. If we try option one, we'll get this kind of outcome of the graph. And you have variables in there and things like that. And you could agree or disagree on, on the, 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 the influence of the variables to the outcome, but you need to know as a marketer how to express your ideas in, with numbers financially. Um, and the last piece of advice I'd give is push yourself out of your comfort zone to find new areas to, to specialize in. You know, if, if you're product marketing, you know, try to figure out something adjacent to that, you know, uh, maybe brand or something. If you're, um, you know, field marketing, try to figure out more global scale demand. If you're like, keep building the tools in your tool belt so that the important thing here is that when you face a challenge, an organizational challenge, like, ah, this isn't working anymore. You don't look at it from one or two dimensions. Like you have a broad set of ideas and dimensions as to how to um, recognize what the problem is versus the symptoms. And you can only get that by continuing, you know, rather than being in one role and taking it as far as you can, keep trying to get broader and wider and learn more about the business of marketing across many different phases. I guess it's just going back to our initial conversation, become a T-shaped marketer, I guess. Exactly. Right. Exactly. We'll, we'll conclude on this note. This has been a fascinating last hour or so, Mark. So thank you so much for your time. It's a lot of good stuff. I learned a lot. I'm sure our audience would too. too. Uh, again, thanks for taking time. Um, I'll be thank in touch. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you reaching out. Thank you.